The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Thank you once again for uh, letting me preach today. It's always a pleasure and an honor. Hey, let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. You have revealed yourself to us in your word. And Father, we have, you know, it was a great passage today, and, and Father, I'm, I don't feel really adequate to preach your word, and I pray, Lord, for your help. I need your help. I pray, Lord, that you will be honored, that you will be glorified, and that where uh, conviction is needed, uh, repentance will come, and we just pray, Lord, we have a greater understanding of who you are and who we are in our new identity, and we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> There's a word that we use here quite often, and that word is identity. We talk a lot about who we are and what we are, and if you notice, our society does the same thing, uh, placing a lot of emphasis on people finding their identity. A lot of effort is spent on encouraging people to look inside themselves, and as Brother Andy pointed out a few weeks ago, to discover themselves and to love themselves and then to express themselves. Who are we? What are we? What do we believe? What do we think about what we believe? How do we project or express our identity? We've always had an identity, and before we came to Christ, we had certain things we, we believed, certain things that we did, certain things that made us who we are, certain things that make up our identity. And then one day, Christ entered into our lives, and our, our eyes were open, and our hearts changed, and some of the things we once believed, we don't believe anymore. Some things we once did, we do not do anymore. We view people differently. We view the world differently. We view God differently. What happened? What happened was we were given a new identity. An identity that did not grow up from inside ourselves, but was given to us. We're studying Paul's letter to the Colossians. And in chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul reminds us of our past. He reminds us uh, back when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. And what does that mean? Well, it means that we were dead spiritually. It means our spirits were dead to the things of God. We have no good in ourselves, and we had no desire to submit to our Creator. Even those of us that said back then that we believed in God, when confronted with the reality of who God truly is, deep down, you hated him. You did not want that God. However, Paul reminds us that we are then buried with Christ because Christ Jesus was crucified on a cross and then he was buried. And God united us to Jesus in his death. And it means that we then died with Christ. And then God then raised Jesus from the dead, making him alive to Live again, and likewise, we are made alive together with Christ by God, who raised Jesus from the dead. So, God has united us, not you, to Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. 
Paul writes in Romans 6.11, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So our spiritual self died to sin, but through God's Holy Spirit, we've been made alive to God. Paul tells us in verse 3 of our chapter that our life is then hidden in Christ. Therefore, we are now in Christ and are hidden in Christ, meaning that we are protected and cherished in Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Therefore, through faith in Christ alone, you have a new identity. Your new identity is in Christ, given to you by God the Father. And our old identity, which Paul refers to as our old self, that old identity, that was a slave to sin. And what does that mean? Well, in a spiritual sense, everyone, everyone is a slave. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. In our natural state, we are a slave to sin. Slaves have no will of the of their own. They are literally in bondage to their master. And when sin is our master, we are unable to resist it. Because our old self is a slave to sin, we would choose sin before we would choose righteousness. But our old self died to sin. Our old self was crucified with Christ. Paul writes in Romans 6, 6 through 7, we know that our old self was crucified with him, being Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now we are dead to sin, but alive in Christ. Therefore we are empowered by the Holy Spirit who comes to live within us, and it is by his power that we are able to resist sinning and become slaves of righteousness. So now, everything about us should be perfect, right? We should be sinless, yeah? Our thoughts and actions are always righteous and good, correct? We know the treasure of all wisdom and knowledge is found in Christ, and therefore in order to do and say what is right and good, we, and what's best, we dip into this treasure, and then we do it. Then why does Paul write this letter to the Colossians, warning, warning them not to succumb to false teachings? Why does he tell them not to fall prey to plausible arguments? Why does he have to explain to them that all wisdom and knowledge is found in Christ? Why we sometimes say the wrong things and do the wrong things and we don't do the right things and don't say the right things. What's going on here? Well, we come to believe in Christ by faith. A, a spiritual battle rages inside us between God's spirit and our impulse to sin. We still have a remnant in our body that causes us to sin, that causes us to turn away from God Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Paul himself knew how hard it can be to not live in sin. Uh, because, he, because even Paul 
while he was before he, or after he became an apostle, he still struggled with sin. Romans seven twenty two through twenty three, Paul writes, "For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and make me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." So while we can say with our mind that God's law is good, that we love his law, our flesh, the members of our body says, eh. Despite our new identity, we are still fallen human beings. We still have remnants that cause us to sin. And the good we want to do, this remnant leads us not to do it. And the bad we don't want to do, this remnant inside us leads us to do it. Our remnants love the sins in our lives that we don't want. Today we're going to talk about putting off and putting to death dead remnants in our old self. So we're going to begin our journey in Colossians looking at the practical aspects of the Christian life. So God the Father, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, has given us a new identity. So... How should we respond to our new identity in Christ through faith? Well, today we're going to see two aspects of our new identity. First of all, we're going to put to death what is earthly. Secondly, we're going to see that Christ is the ultimate identity. Once again, how should we respond to our new identity in Christ through faith? Well, we're going to put to death what is earthly. And secondly, we're going to see Christ as the ultimate Identity. Take a look at verse 5. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now we're going to stop right there, and you notice in the middle of that sentence, or the middle of that part of the sentence, it says, We see a therefore there. So, therefore means because of that, or for that reason, or consequently. So, we have to look back a few verses to see because of what. Why are you telling us this? And Paul is immediately picking up on what he said in the previous section, verses 1 through 4. He says, because we have died with Christ and have been raised with Christ, we are now in Christ. Because of these things, we are to put to death what is earthly in us. Now, what does that mean? The ESV says, put to death what is earthly in you. And in the Greek, you see that it actually says, your members that are on the earth. In fact, the New King James Version does say, put to death your members which are on the earth. So that means that there are remnants or members of our body that causes us to sin. And this is one of the, one of the opponents in the spiritual battle that rages inside us. So what earthly things are we to put to death? Let's look at the rest of verse 5. Put to death, therefore, was earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, that is quite a list, all of them sexual in nature. We're not going to go into a deep dive into each individual sin in this list, but we do need to have a reference as to what Paul is, means by these sins. When he says sexual immorality, he was talking about as any act of sexual sin, such as sex outside of marriage or adultery. Impurity, also translated as uncleanness. Uh, it refers to impurity of thought, word, or action. Passion, also translated as lust. 
is a strong and unbridled passions. They have evil desires. Evil desires speaks of intense and often violent cravings. Then you have covetousness, also translated as greed. It's a strong desire to have something or someone. And greed and covetousness is said to be idolatry because it's placing something and worshiping something or someone instead of the living God. Paul might intend to suggest that covetousness or greed is actually the source of the other four sins. These sins are all carnal or disorderly appetites. And Paul says to put them that are in us to death. What does our society think of these things? What we call sexual immorality or lust or impurity are thought to be valid expressions of one's identity. They're celebrated. How dare you old-fashioned Christians tell us what we're doing is wrong? And yet we all know the evil that comes from these sins, from pornography, abused women, adultery, broken families, fatherless children, abortion, disease, poverty, and now mutilation. And our society gives hearty approval to such evil, despite the consequences. But Paul isn't writing to society at large. He's writing to Christians. It's important to note, I do want to note, that sex and sexual desires are gifts from God, but we sin when we take these good gifts and misuse them. We take good gifts such as desire, longing, and passion, and we twist them into our own evil desires, our own evil uses. And these disorderly desires are prideful towards God. Paul called them idolatry, and we want, we want something that God hasn't given us. We want, we're saying to God that he's not enough, that he doesn't satisfy us. We want something in place of the God of the Bible. And when Paul tells us to put these things to death, he's saying they, they have no power over you. You're not a slave to them. You died to them. And we are to be different. We are to stand out from the world. Remember, we are to be holy and righteous. We have a new identity in Christ. And practicing these things is not a reflection of our new identity. And we need to live in that new identity. We are to put to death our earthly selves because we have died with Christ. And what does it mean to put them to death? Here is the same principle that Jesus presented in commanding us to pluck out an eye or even cut off a sinful hand. Now, the point isn't to actually mutilate the body. It's to show how dreadfully serious this is. God takes this seriously. And it's to show you how wicked your heart is. And, of course, cutting off a part of the body is of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. The call isn't to do better. The call is to put them to death. And Paul is saying that, you know, don't let your body just run willy-nilly, letting it do whatever it wants. We are to live by Christ's desires in our lives, because our final self is glory. Christian, put these things, put these dead remnants to death that are inside you. Set your heart on things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And why? Well, we're going to see two reasons why. Verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
Yes, the wrath of Almighty God is coming. Hottest day of the year. I'm going to tell you, all my wrath of Almighty God is coming. God's wrath is a controversial subject these days. So many people hate the idea of God being wrathful. It's believed to be out of step with a biblical portrayal of a loving God. However, this is the story that runs throughout Scripture. Mankind has rebelled against a holy and righteous and just and loving God. And this loving God, because he is holy and righteous and just and loving, must punish sinners. God's wrath is tied directly to his holiness and depicts the necessary reaction of a personal God to any violation of his character or will. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, these are offensive to God. He hates them. He hates what they do to people. There will be a day when God says, enough is enough, and he pours out his wrath onto the people of the world. It's written in Isaiah 13, 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. It's coming. His wrath is coming. God will pour out his wrath on those who commit these sins. Paul also writes in Romans 1, 24 through 25, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather, rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. See, these sins, they are elevated to a whole new level of seriousness. Therefore, it is vital that we put them away before the time comes when God the Father no longer allows repentance. Now, we do have a bit of conundrum here. This warning about God's wrath is directed at God's people. It was written to the Colossians. Therefore, it's written to us. God's true people are saved from his wrath from God is guaranteed. Christ died for these sins and took the wrath of, from God in our place. The wrath of Almighty God fell on Jesus. However, Paul is warning that persistent sinful behavior will bring God's judgment. Now for God's true people, these sins will bring suffering. These sins will ruin families, destroy reputations. These sinful appetites end up devouring people. And worst of all, these sins give God's enemies an excuse to blaspheme his name. Now, relating these two biblical principles, that God's people are saved from, his, from God's wrath by grace, and that people who commit these sins will receive God's wrath, it does present a bit of a theological challenge. And scholars do ponder over this. But I'll just say that however it resolves itself is very clear. We have to take this seriously and passionately. And by passionately, by passion here, I mean it's the good kind of passion. It's, it's, a direct, it's a passion directed in the right place, and that is to kill what is earthly in you. See, when you engage in these sins, you are worshiping a different God. You're not worshiping the God of the Bible. Where is your heart? Can you still live in these sins? 
You don't want these in your life. We have to rid ourselves of these sins. We have to hate them and kill them. And if you don't kill them, they will kill you. We have to put to death what Christ died for. Secondly, it's not who you are anymore. You are dead to sin. You are no longer a slave to it. It is no longer your identity. It's your, that was your old self. Verse 7, it says, In these two, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. So it would appear that these sins characterize the pre-Christian experience of the Colossians. We can certainly fast forward to today. You know, many of us have practiced the same sins prior to, to your union with Christ when we're living in the world, when our old self was alive to them and our spirit was dead to God. And this verse, it's like looking at yourself in a mirror that reflects your identity. What do you see? Do you see someone walking these sins? Are you living in them daily? Look, everyone sins. There's no, no one who has completely killed sin. But when you sin, do you mourn over it? Do you confess it to God? Does your heart desire these things? Do you want these things that bring God's wrath? Do you want to be like that? Are you actively putting to death what's earthly in you? And notice, I did say actively putting them to death. This is not a one-time action. You know, since as we are painfully aware, our old self seems to be forever with us. And just as repentance is not a one-time occurrence, we are to keep repenting, keep killing sin. It's like weeds in our garden. Pulling them is not a one-time event. You go out there next week, and there they are again. We have to keep pulling them. And, and thinking that you can love God and continue practicing the old life is to deceive yourself. God's grace does not come upon those who are practicing these sins. And you will be judged if you're not actively putting these sins to death. Paul Washer puts it this way. People come up to me and say, Brother Paul, I have a new relationship with God. And I tell them, do you have a new relationship with sin? Because if you don't have a new relationship with sin, you don't have a new relationship with God. Then I ask, if you've got a new relationship with God, well, tell me, do you have a new relationship with his commands? Do you have a new relationship with his word? Because if you don't have a new relationship with his word, you don't have a new relationship with him. So how do you look in front of that mirror? Do you see a new creation? As Christians, there must be a change in our behavior. If you're a new creation, then you have new affections, his word being one of them. You hate sin and the evil things that you once loved. As a new creation, we are called to be holy, set apart exclusively for God, and killing sin is a call for holiness, a call for purity of living. It's what we call sanctification. This is not legalism. Paul certainly combated legalism earlier in chapter 2. This is not a self-made religion. This is a God-made religion. We're called to be holy, and holiness is heart of humility towards God. And Paul is exhorting the Colossians to consider their new status as members of God's people and live according to that status. Therefore, we should desire to rid ourselves of anything that even smells of the old self. So when you look in the mirror of verse 7, what do you see? Someone with an old identity, I see a new creation. 
What are you living for? Fleeting pleasures? Are you looking, are you living for Christ because you're in Christ? If you look in the mirror of God's word and you see someone clinging to earthly pleasures, I urge you that make today the day that you become a new creation with a new identity, one that loves God and desires to please him. Please him. So Paul continues with his theme of how we should live in our new identity. As we are all to, as we are to kill disorderly appetites, we are also to kill disorderly passions. Verse 8. But now must put them all away. And we'll stop here, because now we see a but now. But now contrast our former way of life with action we are now to take, as we are now to take as people who have died to sin. And what action should we take? Well, we're supposed to put away things we loved in our old self. What are we to put away? But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. See, Paul's concern here is that Christians avoid unnecessarily critical and abusive speech because these are contrary to the designs of the gospel. As are the greater sins mentioned in verse 5, even though those in verse 5 may be more spiritually wicked, these in verse 8 are no less dangerous and injurious. There's no sin that does not need to be killed. And the first three sins in this list, anger, wrath, malice, these are, these are attitudes or passions that give rise to abusive speech. So it doesn't appear that Paul intends to single out three separate sins here, but rather use all these three words together to describe a heart, uh, uh, describe an attitude that is filled uh, with hatred and rage. And anger and wrath are bad, but malice is worse because malice is more rooted and deliberate. And these all lead to hasty and ugly and nasty speech. And these are all misused and disordered passions that we use to sin against God, against those created in his image. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18 through 19, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. So how does Jesus' list compare to Paul's list in verse 5? Evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications. These sins come from the same heart that produces sinful anger, wrath, and malice. And then what comes out of our mouth? Slander. An obscene talk. Now, the interesting word here in Greek, the word for slander is blasphemia. Blasphemia. We all know what that word sounds like, right? Blasphemy. It's blasphemia. Now, this can certainly refer to defamation of God and what belongs to him, but also refers to degrading or defamatory speech towards fellow humans is blasphemia because the object of your anger and wrath and malice are made in the image of God and belong to God. Calls it blasphemy. Slander is designed to hurt and humiliate. The intent is to cut them down, destroying, destroying the reputation by any evil art there is. Obscene talk. This is filthy, abusive speech. It is crude and offensive and deliberate and unprovoked, which comes from a 
polluted mind in the speaker and it breathes the same defilements in the hearers. And these are things of the world, earthly things. They're abusive to people. Anger in and of itself is not sin. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. But misusing anger to get back at people because of your selfish pride is sin. Misusing anger, period, is sin. And you need to kill it. Instead of misusing anger, use it to kill what is earthly in you. Be angry at your sin. Bring wrath and malice onto the dead remnant, your old self. Kill it. And now Paul moves on to lying. Verse 9. Do not lie to one another. Paul gives special treatment to lying. Many commentators believe that Paul brings this up here because, uh, brings up forbidding Christians from lying to each other because he's primarily concerned with the health of the Christian community. Now, it's not to say that lying is okay outside of the Christian community because it's not there either. But Paul seems to be particularly concerned with lying within the Christian community because lying to each other brings strife, brings disunity, and is contrary to both the law of truth and the law of love. It's both unjust and unkind. And lying makes us like the devil, who is a father of lies. And lying is the main part of the devil's image of our souls. Therefore, we are cautioned against this sin for this reason. Seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices, have put on the new self. Now, the consideration that we have by profession, put away sin, take up the cause and interest of Christ, that we have renounced all sin and stand committed to Christ, does strengthen us against the sin of lying. Those that have put off the old self have put off with its practices. Again, our old self was crucified with Christ. Paul says, wrote in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Those that put on the new self must put on with its practices. We are now with our new identity, identified with Christ. Identification with Christ leads us to a new way of life. Therefore, our response to our new identity in Christ is to put to death what is earthly in us. And now we'll see that Christ is our ultimate identity. Our new self is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of his creator. So it's being renewed in knowledge because an ignorant soul cannot be a good soul. Remember how Paul prayed for the Colossians back in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. He wrote, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. The grace of God works upon the will and affections by renewing the understanding. Remember, we are made in the image of God, but that image was defaced and lost by sin, but renewed by satisfying grace. It took the life and death 
and resurrection of Jesus, God the Son, to renew and restore what was defaced and lost by sin. His spilt blood on the cross, taking the Father's wrath upon himself in our place, is what took to reconcile us to God, to transfer us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And it's here, here, in the kingdom of his beloved Son, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Isn't this a beautiful verse? What a beautiful verse. Paul said something similar in Galatians 3.28, where he said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, the world is very fond of categorizing us and using these categories to divide us. And given the sinful nature of human beings, these differences, whether they be gender or ethnicity or socioeconomic or age or what have you, these differences cause strife and too many times oppression, violence, and war. Instead, Christians are to accept each other regardless of artificial distinctions imposed upon us by an earthly perspective. Therefore, we see here that Christ is the ultimate unity. There is now no difference arising from a different country or different condition and circumstance of life. And here is much the responsibility of the one as of the other to be holy. As much the privilege of the one as of the other to receive from God the grace to do so. Christ came to take down all barriers that might stand so that all might stand on the same level before God. All stand on the same level before God in both responsibility and privilege. And for this reason, Christ is all and in all. In other words, Christ is absolutely everything. He is both the center point of, of both creation and redemption, one in whom and through whom all things hold together. He is the Christian's only Lord and Savior. He is our life. Christ is all in all. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Christ brings unity because he is the one who lives in all people who make up the new humanity. We have a new identity, so put to death what is earthly in us. We have been united to Christ. Therefore, Christ is our ultimate identity who then brings unity. So we need to take seriously the call to put to death the evil things of our old life and to put on the new life as we are renewed in the knowledge that Christ is our life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we... We love you so much, and we thank you that you have united us to Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. And we confess to you, Lord, that we sin. We still sin against you. We've committed all these sins, Lord, and sometimes we cling to them. Father, we just pray for your strength, your Holy Spirit, to help us to put these old things to death, put this old self to death, Lord, and may we live in our new identity. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. 
For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.